Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtle-Telfram, the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from New Jersey is Katrina Campbell from Campbell Ethics Consulting, where she's also an assistant professor at Rutgers University. And joining us from Paris is Cedric Bourgeois, who is principal investigator with UNESCO. And we're going to be talking today about uh, UNESCO, the UN, and the understanding globally of harassment and how to manage it from a compliance perspective. Cedric, let's start with you. First, it would be good if you could give an overview of UNESCO and how much of the globe it spans. UNESCO is a United Nations agency. We have more than 4,000 staff uh, representing more than 100 nationalities. Half are based in our headquarters in Paris, France, and half uh, in 53 field offices around the globe. Our purpose is to foster peace through intergovernmental cooperation in the fields of education, science, and culture. The UNESCO name is famous for the World Heritage Preservation Program, but there is so much more going on. Yeah, it's quite the broad remit for the organization and one that certainly touches a lot of different areas. Now, um, Katrina, given the broad range of cultures UNESCO and really the entire UN operates in, I, I imagine understanding of harassment varies greatly. What are some of the challenges faced in this area? Oh, the challenges are many. Um, as you said, UNESCO is part of this UN system. You have more than 120,000 employees overall, plus many, many more consultants and other contingent staff. So the UN in general is a very particular setting from a harassment and compliance standpoint. We have privileges and immunities in the course of the work. Um, we, the UN is not subjected to national laws for harassment or discrimination or any other national laws because they're international, intergovernmental organizations. And so one cannot uh, rely on recourse to law enforcement or the judicial system until after, for example, in a harassment investigation, the investigation has actually already occurred. Um, so in the UN, you are starting within the UN, not going to external bodies first. And additionally, it's definitely true that what one can see as being harassment um, will be driven by one's culture um, and by the environment in which one is living or growing. Cultures, though, change over time. Even in the United States, what may have been acceptable behavior 40 or 50 years ago might be sexual assault today. And in the UN, it's the same thing. So the UN has had to adapt to changes in expectations for how organ the organizations will treat harassment and harassment complaints. Um, and I think that that change has been very positive, especially in the last four or five years. So uh, that leads to a question of how did the UN traditionally address harassment? The UN traditionally addressed harassment cases by resorting to the management and by resorting to human resources. The UN used to have these investigative panels often staffed with retirees who were consulting to the organizations. Um, the institutional integrity framework that actually conducted official investigations was really much more focused on fraud and corruption. And in fact, most of the investigators that I have interacted with come out of the fraud and corruption space, perhaps within their own national governments. The experience of the victims was not the primary concern in those situations. 
Now, of course, Cedric can speak more to the investigative methods back then and how we perceive the traditional investigator, but I can tell you that how the victim perceived the situation would not have been the first thing under consideration in the investigations that would be done by management or by human resources. Yeah, indeed, Katrina, and on the uh, institutional integrity front, in, indeed, we were hired uh, for our expertise in fraud and corruption. This has changed recently with uh, virus backgrounds being considered for internal investigators, but really the, the core of the function is, is fraud and, and corruption. So when we started investigating harassment or sexual harassment case cases, the victim was just an element of the investigation, which would be focused on procedure, on procedure on applying the same method as any other internal or criminal investigation. We have moved from that to focus on the needs of the victim first. So when a victim or a complainant walks into your office with a complaint of harassment or of sexual harassment, you have somebody in pain in front of you. Is a story the person is telling you exactly the truth? The investigation will find out. What is certain is you have someone with a predicament and you need to help. And that's what we call the victim-centered approach. A victim walks in, you focus on the needs of the victim first. And this requires different skill sets because here one of the key elements is to avoid re-traumatization. You want to, uh, to bring some comfort, maybe he start a healing process. You want to build trust, a trust that was lost in interactions with others, maybe in interactions with the organization. And once you have you, you build that trust, you can gather a valuable testimony. Uh, in fraud and corruption work, all that matters really is, is documentary evidence. And the, the interviews of witnesses or, or interviews of subjects are not as key. That's really quite an evolution um, in terms of how you've handled the whole investigation of these kinds of cases and the treatment of them. Uh, how did the UN address the Me Too movement and adjust its harassment efforts? Uh, Katrina, you already referenced that it's had a profound effect. I agree that it has absolutely had a profound effect. And I should be clear, of course, I don't speak for the UN. I used to be a chief ethics advisor within the UN system, but now even looking back on the experiences that I had over the years, the change was profound. I think the entire UN really had started to awaken to the need to address sexual harassment because prior to, or maybe at the beginning of the Me Too movement, the UN was dealing with the scandals in sexual exploitation and abuse, primarily when within, but not only within the peacekeeping operations. In the UN, sexual exploitation and abuse is the term that is used when there is sexual misconduct by UN officials, staff, or soldiers against beneficiaries of UN programs. And so that really awakened the organizations right away to the fact that this was not about a few bad apples, a few bad actors, but that really there was a system that had allowed this behavior to go unpunished. Um, the handling of complaints when they would come in was certainly not the best. And so I think when Me Too happened and, and really the awareness within the UN was raised that this was not just about beneficiaries of programs being hurt, but also even about staff of the UN being hurt, 
then the UN said, you know, we really have to take a different approach. And I think that the new secretary general coming in really said, you know, early on, we have to address issues of sexual misconduct against not only beneficiaries, but against our internal staff. And as Cedric said, to really take on a victim-centered approach. So there were a few things that happened that were very, very clear. One was the hiring of especially women, not to put Cedric out of a job, but the hiring of a number of women investigators to handle harassment cases, as well as other cases, of course. But the idea being that if I'm a victim and I need, I need the comfort of having another woman in the room, or even knowing that there are women and men who are available, that's going to be so much better for me as a victim. Again, that victim-centered approach says we need to create an environment that is conducive to that person coming forward. So one, we absolutely, I think within the UN, there was an approach that said, this is not about a few bad actors. And then two, we have to take care of that victim first, regardless of the outcome of the case. It doesn't require that the victim be innocent. It doesn't require that the victim, that we find out that the victim is telling the absolute truth. We can take care of that person and of the situation while we are then moving forward with an investigation. And I think that's one of, those are some of the major differences that have happened since the Me Too movement approach started. And I think that's consistent with what we've seen with Me Too and other aspects um, in private sector and other government settings where we're not saying, you know, first we have to check you out, but rather we hear you and we're here for you. And I think that's been a major difference. Yes, Katrina, in, in, in addressing uh, sexual harassment and actually harassment cases in general, uh, now it's clear for investigators and anyone involved in the UN that addressing it properly is part of the duty of care we have as an employer of choice. And it, it, it's part of our employer's brand now. We want to lead by example. And it's a priority of management. Of course, we, we hear it in, 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 in public, but internally, I've heard from a senior manager uh, that uh, in, in terms of addressing sexual harassment, uh, mercy will be in short supply, was the word. Uh, that's clear enough. When you are an investigator in the UN, the sexual harassment cases are your priority right now. So you've outlined really a, a remarkable transformation, much more focused on the victim and the impact it's, it's, uh, the harassment has had on that person. How have your efforts worked out and is there any key learning for other organizations looking to strengthen their own efforts in this area? I think that it's a work in progress right now. Um, I think the issue of harassment has to be addressed over a number of years. We are talking about decades of institutional avoidance of this issue. And I think now we're seeing the approach change, but it will take probably another five years before we know what the true impact will be. And I think other organizations would also do well to adopt a not wait and see, but let's aggressively act and continue to measure the change. Um, I certainly see even at the more informal levels prior to investigations that the informal advisory work that's going on with victims of harassment and even potential perpetrators of harassment is having an effect 
on changing the culture of the organizations within the UN that I am privy to seeing. And I think that that is also going to later on have, uh, we're going to see the fruits of that work going on. So it's not just about investigations. And I think organizations have to understand that also at the level of advising, whether you're in human resources or in the ethics office, be sure that you are taking a victim-centered approach even at those levels as well. And I think we will see positive results later. As compliance professionals, we tend to focus and start with policies and, and training. But if you have no visible action, uh, you will not reach the target. When we strengthened our anti-harassment policy at UNESCO in the wake of the Me Too movement, victims approached our investigation office and several told us, we decided to trust the organization and test the commitment. Uh, this is a critical moment because your policy and your program is only as good as your worst case. So better be ready for everything when you announce your commitment. So change, of course, will not occur overnight. It did not. But after a few cases under our new policy, most staff now knows they have colleagues they can talk to and who are willing to help. And that's what's changing the culture. Yeah, and certainly when you want to change a culture, the first thing you want to do is make people feel as if they can be a part of it and the culture respects them. And that sounds like exactly what you're doing. Well, Katrina, Cedric, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <laughs>